Peter, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and y'all say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Ten verses that my wife just read. And in those ten verses, you will see the highest of commendations that Jesus will give to a person. And then also the depths to which he will correct someone if they try to get him off of his mission. In these 10 verses, we see the apostle Peter, one of the disciples called by God that Jacob Pierce, our minister to young adults, talked about last week. Peter, the fisherman. Peter, the one who threw his nets back out into the deep. And then they caught so many fish that they were about to break. Who comes back to the shore, who calls him Lord, who begins to follow him step by step that this same Peter, who in his approach to discipleship is more of a uh, ready-shoot-aim kind of person, right? Instead of ready-aim-shoot. He's one of those guys who is just fast on the trigger. His mouth gets ahead of him, and he is very short, very confident in what it is he thinks should be done. And as we look at this episode that happens here tonight, here in the Matthew chapter 16, but this same instance can be found in the gospel of Mark and can be found in the gospel of Luke, those three called the synoptic gospels. And in each of those, this passage functions as a hinge point from what came before to what's coming after. That there is something happening in this passage that doesn't just have movement in the gospels, but that can have movement in your life. That as we're looking at these 10 verses here tonight, we are going to be considering ultimate things, important things, weighty things, significant things. And there is life 
unlocking truth for you here in these 10 verses tonight. And so I'm just gonna put all my cards on the table here at the very beginning. There is one truth that I want you to be able to walk away from these 10 verses with. If you don't hear anything else tonight, I want you to be able to hear this. It'll be up on the screens. To follow Jesus, we must clearly understand both who he is, his person, and what he's done, his work. That a lot of times you will hear this in kind of theological circles talked about the person and work of Christ. The person and work of Christ. The person, who he is, the work, what he's done, the mission that he is trying to accomplish. That we see both of these fused together here in these 10 verses. And so let's look together, verses 13 through 20. We're going to look first at the person of Jesus. Here in these, verse 13 through 20, we see Jesus talking to the disciples, and then Jesus talking to Peter, and then Jesus capping it all off again. There's back and forth that's going on with the disciples. Follow along in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the region, into the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is like the northernmost part of his ministry that he's going through in the Gospels. He asks his disciples, he like pulls them up. He says, hey, let's circle up real quick. Let me ask you a question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You see, right here, Jesus had been ministering with his disciples for a little while now. Some time has passed from when Jacob was talking last week and he gave that initial call to follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They had heard him in his many teachings. They had seen his many miracles. They had spent nights and days with him up until this point. They had a lot of questions, but here Jesus is turning the questions back on them. That they were trying to figure a lot of things out along the way. But what Jesus is doing right here is he is putting it back to the disciples. And he says, who do people say that the son of man is? I love that. It's, it's kind of like the prototypical family feud question, right? Y'all seen that? Steve Harvey, right? You know, like I, I feel like when I'm scrolling sometimes, it is, that's where a highly concentrated amount of a lot of funny clips come is from that particular game show, right? And so like you're going through and uh, what is the highest paying sports, you know, like average salary or something like that survey says, right? And so Jesus is just acting a very general kind of thing. He's like, so who do people say that the Son of Man is? It's like a general survey, wanting to get a feel for what the perception is of the people as they are plowing around through this ancient Near Eastern world. And so they come through in verse 14, they say, some say John the Baptist, back from the dead. He's been executed up until this point. Maybe John the Baptist back with his head reattached, like he had gotten it off the silver platter. My goodness, that's a weird story. Like if you want to go read it, my, the pettiness over which his death occurred. Jesus said, the greatest among men. Going right here. Some say it's John the Baptist. Others thought he was one of the Old Testament prophets, like Elijah. I mean, that was an intense brother. And he's going through, and they say, it's Elijah. He's come back. Or others would say, it's like Jeremiah. All of these perceptions were in line with Old Testament prophecy of things that they thought the Messiah would be like. But they were all wrong. You see, people have always had ideas about what the Messiah what the deliverer should do, what he should be like, what he should look like. They have their ideas, these agendas that they think that he was going to be coming and that he was going to be achieving. People have always had ideas about who Jesus is or the kind of work he was supposed to be doing. And if Jesus were to ask this room this question today, 
So who do people say that Jesus is? It might not immediately go back to a lot of fully loaded Old Testament imagery, but it might go back to maybe some of these. I came across this list a few years ago, and I haven't been able to unsee it in the world. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians, and he determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's gentle Jesus, who was meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks very German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us to remember that all you need is love. There's Hallmark or Lifetime Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, bad sermons, and he inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so that we can walk on mountains. There's Boyfriend Jesus, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in the secret place. There's Vending Machine Jesus, who takes the quarters of our prayers and dispenses a blessing to us. And there's Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people to change the planet and to become a better you. There are a lot of these different perceptions of Jesus. A lot of different ways. If he were to come and ask this group, so who do people say that Jesus is? These are a lot of the things that we could pepper out. Maybe not from the Old Testament, but from the surrounding culture. And a lot of people believe that Jesus is one of these ways. Some of you here this evening might believe that Jesus is acting in one of these ways. But Jesus asked the question to the disciples Now more specifically, he moves from, so who do people say that I am? Just kind of a general survey. And he gets uncomfortably specific. But who do you say that I am? Not what do other people say. Not what do other people think. But what do you think? Who do you say that I am? Verse 15. This is the most important question that can be asked. And it's a question that I am asking you here tonight. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he one of the caricatures that we talked about just a couple of minutes ago? I'm here to tell you, he is not. Jesus will not be co-opted by a foreign agenda. He will not be taken captive by anything lesser than the work that he has come to accomplish. That Jesus is so much more and who he is obliterates all of these lesser pictures of who he is. We see Peter's confession right here is the right answer. He says in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There are a lot of important questions that you're going to consider in the coming years. For our college students, you're going to be thinking through what major, where do I live, who do I live with, do I do grad school, what city do I live in, do I date this person, do I marry this person, and a lot of those questions will carry you over into young adulthood, post-grad life. Where do I go to grad school? What does the Lord want me to do in my life? 
Do I need to continue on with this relationship? Do I need to go over here? You're going to be considering a lot of really significant, potentially life-altering questions. But I would contend that none of them is more consequential than how you answer this question. Who do you say that I am? And if it is anything less than, if it is anything other than you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then we are missing it. When Peter says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it means that he is the anointed one. It says sometimes we have these really churchy words, right, that we use over and over again. Like for a long time growing up, I thought Christ was his last name. You know, Jesus Christ, you know, kind of one of those things. Like, but Christ, it is a title. It is an honorific title. And it is the Greek word of the Old Testament word, Messiah, anointed one. It is kingly language. It is one who has oil poured on them, setting them apart for service, empowering them for action, designating them apart from others who will do a work for others. And so when it says that he, you are the Christ, it is a confession that he is king and that Peter is not. That you are the Christ, you are the anointed one. You are the long-anticipated Messiah who is coming. And what does the Messiah do? Delivers, and they're feeling it. They're feeling Roman occupation. They're feeling the pressures from other nations infringing upon the way that they're living right there. And what does he do? He says, you are the Christ. And then you are the son of the living God. He is the one true son of God. The one who was foretold of in the Old Testament, beginning with the law, and going through the prophets, and going through the writings, he is the one that everything is culminating in. He is the terminus, and he is the launch point. He is all building up to, around, and for him. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you are blessed enough to follow Jesus... Or if you don't follow him and you are blessed enough to be here tonight, not because you get to sit under amazing music, which it is, and you get to sit under this teaching, which is tethered to the word, but you have sovereignly stumbled into the greatest thing that ever was, is, and will be. That you now, if your eyes have been awakened to be able to see the beauty of the king of the cosmos right here, that your life now has meaning. It has significance. That you don't have to chase after anyone or anything else to be able to tell you who you are, what you're worth, or what your story is, and where you can be located in the vastness of everything that is around you. But you now, because he is the Christ, the son of the living God, he can radically change your life. This is the most important thing. No exaggeration. I love the way that C.S. Lewis, the 20th century apologist, the way that he put it, uh, mere Christianity, you know, you go through Chronicles and Narnia, all that kind of stuff. The man, I mean, it's just a gold mine. But he had this to say. If Jesus is who he says he is, he is of infinite importance. If Jesus is, is not who he says he was, he is of no importance. The only thing that he cannot be is moderately important. You have to seriously contend with who Jesus says he is. If he is the Christ, the son of the living God, 
then he, in following him, is of all importance in your life. If he's not, then you are wasting your time here tonight. But the only thing that cannot be the case is if after you closely consider these claims is for him just to be an accessory to your life. Something that you can put on, put down, pick up when you want to. We're getting close to the changing of the seasons. and Everybody loves flannel weather, right? You know, it's just like at a certain time, like where I want to be able to pick this back up again. Oh, it's that time of year. Love Christmas, right? Baby Jesus in the manger, right? You know, it's, it's not one of those things that we can just opt, but that it is of all-consuming importance for us. He cannot be moderately important. Today, our, um, some of our staff here at Dawson, we, we took a field trip. It was fun. You do work field trips. I don't know if anybody's ever done a work field trip before, but they are so much more fun than school field trips. And like, so we went on a work field trip, and I mean, we left pretty early uh, this morning. We headed down to Montgomery, and we were visiting some church planting partners that we were helping to support in West Montgomery. Uh, Strong Tower Fellowship, incredible church. We met with some faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that are shining as lights that are being salt in a very difficult place. And as they're going through, we're sitting in this gym on like really uncomfortable wooden bleachers. But like when I tell you, I could have sat there glued to my seat all day just to hear them tell their testimony, like I could have. And as each of them going through, telling their story, I got back in the car with Jacob and Kara and we were reflecting on just everything that we heard. And Every single one of them in a different way said something along the following. The Lord gripped my heart when I was in college. It wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't anything like I saw the sky part. I didn't hear angel chorus and the lights come up in my bedroom. But I prayed. I wanted to faithfully follow him. And the next thing that I knew, things that I took great joy and delight in before that were displeasing to God became offensive to me. I had a mouth like a sailor. I couldn't do it anymore. Or I would go over here to this or that party, or I would try to go back into this circle that was just all about hookup culture. I, I couldn't do it. Like everything in me wanted to turn and run the other way. That the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that unlocks the meaning of life for you, gives you a new taste, gives you new sensibilities makes things that are displeasing to God offensive to you and that you want to say no to sin and you want to say yes to Jesus. You want to live a life that is pleasing before him. This is what it looks like for someone who has considered that Jesus is who he said he was, that they want to turn and trust. And now in following him, they want to be pleasing to him, not to earn approval but because they have already been approved of. And now this is just how somebody in the family lives. And as they were going through, and as they were contemplating this, they had to reckon with, is Jesus who he said that he was? And Jesus commends him. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Like, Jesus is telling Peter, yes, that's it. You get it. Ding, ding, ding. Right answer. Full formal name. 
Like, yes, even gone into your lineage and everything like that. Like, I want you to feel the magnitude of this moment of how right you are. Yes. Yes. Peter gets it right here. But we get to, from the person of Jesus now to the work of Jesus in verses 21 through 23. This same subsection. And now Jesus and Peter are going to have a little bit of a back and forth. We see in verse 21, from that time, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. You see, the movement in the gospel accounts are now towards Jerusalem. Jesus has gone to his northernmost point in his ministry and now is going down. That it has reached a certain point where now things are headed towards the cross. And I love the fact, like when Jesus is going through and when he's talking with the disciples right here, that this isn't just a little factoid. This isn't just a cool little neat thing to know about. But what it shows us is that the events of Easter were not random. Jesus was not the victim of circumstance or just in the wrong place at the wrong time but that these events were on purpose. And in fact, it was why he came. He was in full control over the kangaroo court that was to come and that he was not taken, but that he gave himself up for us. He is the anointed Christ, the king deliverer. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. But we also see that in the Old Testament, the picture, he's the suffering servant. Book of Isaiah that he is the one who is going to be giving his body as a sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin is a grave matter and it will be dealt with, but God himself and his son will deal with this. But this, this isn't what the disciples signed up for. And Peter kind of is the representative, the one who was very vocal, the one that was always brash and ready to get out there up in front. He's probably feeling a little good. He's like, you know, just... You're like, yeah, I got that commendation from Jesus. Did y'all hear what he said? Simon Bart, like, he wasn't just talking to like all of you. He was talking like to me. Yeah, I got it right. I know the Sunday school answers. I got that gold star. I'm wearing that patch right here. You hear what Jesus said to me? And, but then Jesus from that time on starts talking about how he's going to be going to Jerusalem, how he's going to be handed over the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They're going to crucify him. He's going to die, but he's going to rise again from the dead. But then Peter, probably still a little full of himself, goes over and in verse 22 says this, and Peter took him aside. Do y'all picture this? Peter, Jesus, Jesus, come here. Takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Do you feel just like how cringe that is right there? (laughs) Like the fact that Jesus is being dressed down by Peter. And he is going through and he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. He's rebuking Jesus after he's saying that this is what's going to happen. Peter is suffering from what us Southerners like to call getting a little too big for your britches. Okay. That he is full of himself and his ego right here. 
He's riding high on his earlier commendation. And this is strong language. Peter pulls him aside, begins to rebuke him. But Jesus's reply is even stronger. And I want you to hear this. Because we need the Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your weary souls. We need that. But we also need to see the Jesus who will not see his mission or his path compromised or co-opt. That Jesus right here is going to be dealing strongly with Peter in a similar way that he did earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in his temptation when the devil was at him in the wilderness. Let's look at this. Verse 23. But he turned aside and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. From the heights of commendation of Attaboy, Simon Barjona, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. What has changed in the span of seven verses? Well, Jesus. He said, Peter, you got the person right. But when I start talking about my work and what I've come to do, you got that all wrong. There were people that probably thought that Jesus, that the Messiah, that the anointed one, the king deliverer was going to be able to come and kind of just flick the Romans out of Israel. Just get them out. Or like lead a military conquest. Or be able to restore power, the pecking order, the rightful place of the Israelite nation. But Jesus is coming, and the deliverance that he's going to be working is so much more than geopolitical restoration right here. That when he is coming, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. This is what Satan was doing in the wilderness temptations with Jesus. After he says, Make these stones become bread, after he says, Throw yourself down from the top and the angels will come, right? What does he do? He says, All right, takes him up to a high mountain. See all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus, if you will just bow down and worship me, I will make all of them yours. And what does Jesus do? Be gone, Satan. Why? Because he was trying to derail his mission that would include the cross. The bloody work of redemption, it would have been a counterfeit. It might have been land, but there would have been no people because to redeem and restore souls would take the very life of Jesus. His perfect life lived for you and me in our place. And his death, the death in the place of sinners for you and me. And then in his life slaying, his death slaying life for us at the resurrection at the empty tomb. Satan's plan didn't have any of that. It was a shortcut around it. It was going around, avoiding the messy, bloody work of redemption. But Jesus would not be derailed. And Peter, taking on the very spirit of Satan in that same temptation, is saying, far be it from you, Lord. You're not going to have to do that. And Jesus responds in a very similar way. Be gone, Satan. Get behind me, for you are a hindrance to me. That whenever we try to take Jesus and make him fit our agenda, 
or to be able to say the things that we want him to say or do the things that we want him to do or get behind the causes that we want him to get behind. Forsaking his person who he said he was or his work, what he came to do. He came to seek and to save the lost. That's you and that's me. And it would require nothing less than his perfect life and his death in our place. And he, right here, has to, in a very abrupt way, do what we see Proverbs 27.6 says. Old Testament wisdom literature. But Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of the enemy. This verse really is kind of like a slap, right? Like you go through and it's like jarring, Jesus, you know, like I, I'm not really sure how to compute what just happened. As I was going through preparing this, it made me think of a time with my mom when I was 11. Um, I was a short, chubby, nerdy little kid and not much has changed, but it's awesome. I'm an adult now. <laughs> And uh, I'm going through, and as I am trying to, my parents were trying to get me active. And so one of the, I played baseball, right? But one of the other things that they wanted me to do in the offseason was they, get, they enrolled me in karate. <laughs> you know, and I was going through, and I was like, man, I'm all about these belts. I love, you know, just a ranking system, firstborn, like give me something to work towards, a goal to achieve, right? And so I'm going through. And I start taking Taekwondo over in Irondale, not too far away. And as I'm over there, I'm going through, I'm advancing through the ranks rather quickly. And I'm going through, and I finally get to the point where I was a black belt at age 11, right? That, uh, that should not tell you anything about my skill, but more just how much they wanted my money, okay? And so, like, they, it was just like a belt farm, I'm convinced. Like, just going through there, like, yes, 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 um, yeah, your mama can keep writing the check. You can get another belt, you know? And so we're going through, and, but I don't know that. I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And so we're leaving karate practice one night, and we're over at the gas station in downtown Mountain Brook. Okay, you know, right over there, not too far away. And I, we pull in to the gas station. I'm like, oh, this is my time to shine. <laughs> Mom, I'm in the passenger seat. I got this. Let me pump the gas for you. And so I hop out, kind of waddle around, and I go through. And I had never pumped gas before, but I had seen her do it enough. But I was like... I'll figure it out, right? You unscrew something over here. You take the pump. You put it in there. All this, that, and the other. I go through. I unscrew the cap. Cool. Go over here. Get the hose. Take it out. Press the button. Ah! I grab the pump, and I'm squeezing. And I don't know what's happening. But all of a sudden, free-flowing gasoline invades every open orifice in my body. And it's like Zoolander out there and just like going through and like gasoline shower everywhere. And my pure white ghee is like a burnt urine brown yellow. And I am just screaming, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Because my knowledge of gasoline up until this point, other than it has a really strong odor, is those like reductionistic stick figures that you see with like the yellow and the black and just the death skulls and everything. And I'm like, this is it. I've achieved a lot, but I'm done. 
And so my mother just hops out of the car and comes around and gets her pudgy little karate kid over here to the bathroom. And we go inside. And as I get in there, I'm screaming, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. She sits me down on the toilet. She grabs some paper towels. And I will never forget what my mother does next. The woman who had embodied tenderness, love, and care for all of my life reaches her hand to heaven and strikes me across the face. Yes, ma'am. You're not going to die. Please be quiet. She pops paper towels in my ears, my nose, my mouth. Uh, right? And then she leads me back to the car like a puppy dog with its tail tucked between its legs. And I sit in silence the rest of the home, way home, stinking like gasoline the whole way. That this was a gasoline moment for Peter. That as he's coming through, and Jesus, in this moment, will not let him continue to go down this road, and in a very jarring way, tries to pull him back from the trajectory that he's going on, from his wheels being stuck, from him trying to think that the mission is going somewhere that it's never going to go, and that it has to be here that Jesus right here, coming down on Peter, was like Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of the enemy. That Jesus could have just been like, oh, Peter, that's so cute. Well, you know, you'll, you'll get this right eventually. Just stick at it there, little guy. But no, Peter, I will be tender. I will be compassionate, but I will not compromise my mission. The path that I'm on will not be derailed. This is where I'm going. Take up your cross in the passage after this one. Take up your cross, all of you, and follow me. So here, Peter, he stumbles. This is one of his lesser moments. But do you notice and you will in subsequent weeks as we're in this series, Peter is not fired. Peter is not canceled. Peter is not thrown out, disregarded, or said, get to the back. The episode right after this is the transfiguration, where Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him, and they get to see the glorified Christ that Jesus is continuing to lead him in his stumbling. And he gives the charge to Peter. He gives it to all of us, not to set our minds on the things of man, but on the things of God. Peter was probably thinking about power, about control, about position, about prestige, about the pleasure that was going to accompany from being attached to the Messiah. But these are not ours for the taking. These are not things to be grasped or to cl be clung to apart from Christ. They are all only in God. And when we trust him, when we follow him, when we clearly understand his person, who he is, when we understand his work, what he's done, this truth can change everything about us. He is the son of God who has made you 
who loves you and who would go through the costly work of redeeming you. He has gone to such great lengths to save you. I'd encourage you, do not set your mind on the things of man, but set your mind on the things of God and follow Christ because in doing so, you will have stumbled into the most important thing in all of existence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would help us. There are sometimes that we think that our ways are better. That our, our thoughts are so lofty that the way that we would do things, the way that we would draw them up are better. But God, would you forgive us? Would you help us to see that your ways are better? Would you help us to see that your thoughts are higher in ways that we would try to take you captive? God, we, we, we cease that striving. We lay it down, God. We ask that you would help us to fall in line, that you would help us to submit to you, that we would not be content with lesser pictures of you, false messiahs, but that we would... We would give everything to you. And in doing so, God, would you, would you change our taste for the things of this world? Would you give us a new palate? Would our sensibilities be utterly changed? And God, would we live lives that are pleasing to you? We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.